folks, and thank you for tuning in to the Global Current, the School of Diplomacies and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Valentina Rejarena. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you tuning in while we speak with two of our own Senior Hall students, Joshua Pawanda and Kasia Kostrabla. As the School of Diplomacy's premier podcast, we break down a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? This week's topic, we're discussing the anti-government protests in Belarus and how it's going down. We'll be dissecting the topic as each of our analysts argue their respective sides on whether diplomacy is the answer to this international dilemma. Later, we will have our briefer give us an update on what else is going on in the week. Now, our briefer Hamza Khan will give us an overview of this week's topic. Thanks, Val. So, for some background on the Belarus conflict, Alexander Lukashenko, he first came to power in Belarus in 1994, and he's often referred to as Europe's last dictator. He instituted many communist policies for decades, and now the people are demanding reform. So opposition candidate Svetlana Tikhanovskaya registered to run against Lukashenko in the election after her husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, was arrested by Lukashenko. Numerous irregularities were reported on the day of the election, including an internet blackout. Lukashenko's government swiftly claimed victory with 80% of the vote. Anger erupted throughout the country, and on September 13th, hundreds of thousands of protesters marched in the capital of Minsk, calling for Lukashenko's removal. Thousands of protesters were arrested and met with a systemically brutal crackdown, according to Human Rights Watch. The harsh crackdowns invigorated more people to join the protests. Tikhanovskaya fled with her children to Lithuania and formed a co the Coordination Council, which is now calling on the EU and the UN to pressure Lukashenko to step down. This Coordination Council is trying to figure out a way, a transitional government, to bring Tikhanovskaya to power after Lukashenko is removed. Protesters included workers at state-owned enterprises around the country, including the state TV. Most of Tikhanovskaya's allies have fled to neighboring countries or have been arrested, including her husband. Lukashenko has been backed by Putin, and many in the international community fear that Putin will use this chaos to annex Belarus. The EU has imposed sanctions on Belarusian officials and has expressed its support for the people of Belarus. Thank you, Hamza. So, let's start with talking about the election that erupted the protest. So, allegedly, the president, Alexander Lukashenko, won 80% of the vote, which is, you know, really good in an election. But people are denying this. I'm curious, what is he saying? Yeah, so President Lukashenko has claimed that he is the victor in the Belarusian election with 80% of the vote. When in reality, many others, the opposition, international and uh, independent groups and organizations claim that it was the reverse. Svetlana Tianovskaya was the uh, actual winner in this election with almost 80% of, of her vote, as opposed to the 10% that the Lukashenko regime is claiming that she got. Lukashenko and his cronies have been accused of ballot stuffing and falsifications, which have led to this, this number of 80%. So uh, it's interesting to note what dictatorial and tyrannical regimes can can do with the power that they possess. The results of this election are, are an example of that. So he's just completely denying that and he's just like, I won fair and square? Exactly. That's yep, that's exactly what he's saying. He's claiming that he is the victor when many people, and you can see with your own eyes from the hundreds of thousands of protesters that flood the streets of Minsk um, each week, that it's quite the opposite. 
Yes. So who is his opposition? What is, what is their background? Um, so his opposition, her, the main person he ran against, her name is Fetlana Tikhonovskaya, and she was basically, her husband was originally running, and he got arrested by Lukashenko and his cronies. There were originally three people running against him, her husband, Sergei Viktor Barbkaya, who he was also arrested, and Valerie um, Tsipkalo, who he was exiled. He fled to Germany after he was threatened to be arrested, like the other two. So Tikhonovskaya, she, her platform is kind of combining the three, and she's just seeking to restore the constitution of Belarus to be more pro-democratic, like its form in 1994 when they broke off from the Soviet Union. Lukashenko, he has, um, throughout his 26 years, he has taken the Constitution and just rewritten it. Like, there used to be a two-term limit for presidents, and he completely took that away, obviously. And he has jailed a lot of his opponents like he did in this election, obviously. So she is running on a pro-democratic type of platform and just trying to restore Belarus to what was before he took over and kind of what they're saying ruined the country and stuff. Oh, thank you, Kasha. That's very interesting that he eliminated a two-term limit that was there. Um, you know, I can see why people are so frustrated. Is there anything else that has been happening in the country that was the straw that broke the camel's back that made people say enough is enough we need this man out of here there are several things that have been happening in the country um for the past couple of years and even the past couple of decades not only has lukashenko been in power as kasha said for many years in fact 26 years he's uh he just was re-elected i say that in quotes for his sixth ter sixth term. So that is a frustration of many of the protesters and frustration of many of the Russians. Um, but another thing is also the COVID-19 pandemic. Lukashenko has has shown his negligence and his incompetence in, in his response to COVID-19 through not uh, imposing restrictions or lockdowns or any shutdown of any kind really on the Belarusian people. In fact, he told people to go visit saunas and drink more vodka in order to relieve the the, the pains of COVID-19. And um, just some numbers to show uh, the devastation in Belarus. There have been 80,000 reported cases, more than 600 deaths. And this is as opposed to uh, President Lukashenko, who has said that there would, wouldn't be one single death in Belarus through his measures of, you know, drinking vodka and visiting saunas. So wow. um, it's, cl it's clear that he has no control over the pandemic and no accurate um, response to it. That's insane that he said just drink some vodka. Yep. Um, so I guess he really does have a very strong, how would you say, relationship with Russia. That kind of just reminds me of Russia and you know how you guys mentioned how he's backed by Putin. Um, has what has the international community said or what has Putin said anything in regards to this happening? Um, Putin said that he does support Lukashenko, but he hasn't actually done anything. Of course, Russia always likes to get their hands in a lot of other stuff. Like right now, 
he was helping with the Armenia Azerbaijan conflict. So he has actively supported Lukashenko, but he hasn't like actually done anything. He's just spoken on it. From the standpoint of other countries internationally, a lot of them are not recognizing Lukashenko as president, and especially the Baltic countries, which is really significant since uh, Belarus borders them. And then a lot of countries like the United States, Great Britain, they have imposed sanctions on Belarus as kind of a retaliation showing like a lot of them want him to step down, but he is refusing to step down. And Thank you, Kasha. Wow. Hmm. That's very interesting. So people want him to step down and they want more of a pro-democracy government. So what's what are their tactics? How long have they been protesting for now? So hundreds of thousands of people have been protesting for the past um, few months, actually, since the election, which was August 8th or 9th, I believe. And um, the protesters come from a wide range of, of backgrounds and social classes, including farmers, factory workers, I think we mentioned before, state-owned enterprises, um, state broadcasters, Lukashenko supporters, and even some of the security forces that are cracking down on the protesters currently. Um, and they have a plethora of tactics that they're deploying in order to overcome the challenges faced that they face from the regime right now. Um, and this is this includes the adoption of social media um, as a means of communication. Uh, and YouTube was actually used uh, as a primary means of popularizing opposition candidates, such as Svetlana Tianovskaya's husband, um, Sergei Tianovsky. And he was the original candidate, obviously we mentioned before, but they have also been using uh, platforms such as Telegram, which is an encrypted messaging service, as well as FireChat and BridgeFly, which are actually programs that you can use without internet because the regime has turned off part of the internet, which is interesting to note, in order to stop the organization and communication of some of the protesters. But it's just a testament to show, a testament to the uh, the motivation and the determination of the protesters who are willing to overcome these, these boundaries um, and these barriers to to organization, to communication, and to protests, that they're using all these different applications. That really is incredible, especially in such an era where we are so technology-driven, especially with the internet, and the fact that he would cut something that it's so, you know, people are so dependent on, it just shows their resilience to continue doing that. Yep. How are, um, how's the regime um, reacting? What are, what are their attack? Police force? Uh, has there been a lot of, has there been any deaths or? Um, there's been a few. I did see an article, but it was about a month old that said that there were two deaths. And I believe there were a few more recently, but I'm not exactly sure how much. But the police has been very violent with protesters. They've used stun grenades, rubber bullets, pressurized water guns and even just resorted to beating people. And they've arrested thousands of protesters so far. Most recently, police threatened to fire ammunition in order to calm protesters, in quotations. And there's a quote from one interior officer saying, police officers, interior troops, 
won't leave the streets, and will use special equipment and military-grade weapons if necessary. That's insane. I'm like, you know, I'm wondering where are they putting all these people? You know, given that, like, if they're arresting so many people that are protesting every single day, it's kind of, you know, inefficient to be uh, fighting the people of your country like this. You know, and it makes me think, why now? Um, I know we mentioned coronavirus was one of like the last straws and all that. But, you know, if we've noticed a pattern or maybe, again, technology has allowed us to see more of this, but we've noticed how much protests have erupted throughout the world recently. Um, And, you know, I feel like maybe other protests have finally also contributed to some motivation for the people of Belarus to also stand up for themselves and say, you know what, we're going to get this man out of office too. Um, so you guys also mentioned that there has been some sanctions on Belarus. Can we talk more about those sanctions and what do those consist of? I think, Kasha, do you want to tackle this because you mentioned the sanctions before? Yeah, sure. So there's just been like a lot of countries um, around it have been stopping trade or um, lowering trade deals as well as just general sanctions. Also, a lot of the Belarusian officials, the uh, the United Nations actually put an asset freeze on them and a lot of them are under travel bans. So they can't leave the country and they're being monitored. The United Nations also said that they're going to impose this ban on Lukashenko if he doesn't decide to either step down or do a re-election within a certain time period. I wasn't exactly sure what the time period was. I think it was about a month. So they're basically giving him the option, either step down or redo the election right now. And if not, they're going to put these bans on him so, for example, he can't escape to another country like Russia that's supporting him. That's so. very interesting. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the international response is a is a very interesting point um, because we see the somewhat ceremonial uh, messaging coming from both sides, you know, the support of Lukashenko from Russia and China, North Korea, obviously, um, and then the Western nations and entities supporting Tihanovskaya. But it's interesting to note whether whether there's going to be any actual tangible tangible action with regard to Lukashenko because the Western entities, the Western organizations and nations, it will be very difficult for them to to interfere in the domestic affairs of Belarus, given the uh, the nature of Belarusians Belarus's history with Russia. And if the Western nations were to interfere in any sort of way with the pro-democracy protesters, Russia would feel obliged to intervene in their own way on behalf of the Belarusian people as as they consider Belarus and Ukraine and many parts of Eastern Europe as the the near abroad and talking in terms of former Soviet times. So it would be interesting to see how this plays out when we talk about an international response. Will there ever be one um, with the West because of the because of the reasons I just outlined before with Russia and and Russia would see that as a as a infringement on their territorial national and regional interests. That is very true, you know, now that you actually pointed out, um, because, you know, we always see the United Nations kind of 
say something to these dictatorships, but it's just, can we really enforce it? Can we really go in there and arrest them without interfering in their national sovereignty or their state sovereignty? Um, and it, that's, I think that's a very difficult role that the United Nations has on their shoulders, whether to actually start physically enforcing things versus hoping they cooperate. I'm wondering how will this affect Belarus and the people of Belarus and, you know, given that they're cutting trade off uh, to the country, but I fear more for the people than I do for the elites and the officials who may have some unlimited amount of resources or not necessarily unlimited, but help from Russia or something. How do we think the people are going to deal with this? It's kind of hard to say, but one of the complaints about Lukashenko as well was that the economy is crumbling under him. And a lot of the people are saying they have low wages, they, their jobs, like especially government sanctioned jobs, since he and his ministers can kind of control their wages or don't think they're getting paid enough. And that's why you see, like Joshua said earlier, a lot of factory workers and industry workers in general have been protesting. So obviously with coronavirus, with these protests and a lot of people out of work, the economy is suffering. But I think the people in some sense are willing to risk it just because they have been going through this already and they're not seeing changes. So they know they have to do something in order to get these changes. That makes sense. Then, yeah, that's definitely a great point. Thank you, Kasha. Now it's just it's either now or never. Um, are they part of the EU, uh, Belarus? I'm not sure. No, I I don't believe so. I don't, no. I don't think they do. No, I don't think they are. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering, given their geographical position there, how that would be affected. But I mean. I guess let's get down to the question of the the show. Is diplomacy the answer? How so? Should the people of Belarus continue protesting until he steps down, decides to, until he just feels like it, until he gets tired of it? No. Who knows? Yeah, I think, I think diplomacy, um, it would be very difficult for diplomacy to take root in such a dictatorial regime as Lukashenko's. Um, if the goal for diplomacy is a change in leadership with Lukashenko and likely Putin, they will never allow that to happen peacefully. There has to be a coalition of international uh, partners and nations that will be willing to put enough pressure uh, on Lukashenko to resign because he's already claimed that he he's not going to resign peacefully. He will, will resign, if anything, um, with a fight. And furthermore, Putin will never allow such such infringement, such Western nations to to do such a thing in Belarus. And we've seen Lukashenko's recent cozying up to Vladimir Putin. Um, I mean, just recently there were there was the arrest of 33 Russian mercenaries in Belarus, and um, Lukashenko happily sent them right back to Moscow without execution of any sort for the crimes that they committed in the, in the war in the Donbass region of Ukraine. 
but it's also going to be very difficult for uh, the protesters con to continue their protests given the given the crackdown and given the fact that um, they can't sustain very much protest without going to work every day and having these financial concerns in the back of their head because uh, the economics of Belarus, as Kasha noted, are, are crippling and um, people are suffering as a result. So the protests will likely die down, I believe, as a result of fear uh, and mm -hmm. economic reasons. And Lukashenko has no um, no claim to, to step down and no reason to step down at this point. You know, I could see some either kind of a refugee crisis uh, from Belarusians trying to uh, escape, or I could see some kind of violent coalitions uh, start to form in order to forcefully take him out, which, you know, neither are a good fix, but it's very worrying. Any final thoughts? I was just going to reiterate kind of what Joshua said, like, actions speak louder than words, and there's all these countries that are condemning Lukashenko, but they need to continue putting pressure on him because these protesters, they're trying their best, but you see when the government's authorizing the police to shoot protesters and all this kind of stuff. There's only so much they could do. So, you know, just countries and, of course, the UN doesn't have that kind of power, but they need to keep pressuring Lukashenko and the government, I think, despite, you know, the fear of Putin, because if not, these people are going to continue being helpless in a sense. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. if I can add to that, um, if we recall in 2013, 2014, and in, in, in the region in Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine was actually facing a similar situation with the President Yanukovych, who who was facing mass protests because of his his decision to align itself closer with Moscow rather than the EU. And protesters protested for four and five intense months, and we saw similar crackdowns from the security forces. And after those four or five intense months, and Yanukovych finally fled the country um, because of fear of his survival. So I'm sure Lukashenko is is seeing this in the back of his head, um, realizing that a dictatorship isn't all powerful as it seems. There is room for for leadership for leadership change, and um, I think he's going to continue this crackdown. But so long as the protests um, continue and have faith and have the determination to achieve what they're trying to achieve, when that's democracy in Belarus. I think they can be successful. Thank you, Joshua. Yeah, for sure. You know what? Now we could just we gotta wait and see uh, how Alexander Lukashenko decides to continue. Given that the United Nations gave him a chance, no, some people don't get that. And let's see how he reacts. But okay, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you guys again so much for joining me today. It was great to be able to talk about this. I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners will learn a lot about this too. Uh, now let's tune in to this week's rundown brought to us by our briefer, Hamza. Thank you. We start this week's rundown with the latest on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. AP reports that the fighting over the Nagorno-Karabakh region of Azerbaijan between the two countries has continued into its third week, resulting in a total death toll of 532 service members. On Saturday, both sides agreed to a Russian-brokered ceasefire. Both sides, however, accused each other of breaching the ceasefire, and on Tuesday, fighting broke out once again. This is an ongoing story and we'll keep you updated. 
Next, we'll go to Kyrgyzstan, where opposition groups took control of Kyrgyzstan's capital. <coughs> After a contested election, opposition groups seized the capital building of Kyrgyzstan's government in Bishkek and forced the election commission to annul the results of the parliamentary election. Al Jazeera reports that President Surani Jianbekov has announced that he will resign to prevent more bloodshed, and Sadir Japarov has been appointed as the new prime minister. Now for some coronavirus updates. It seems like Europe is experiencing a second wave of coronavirus outbreak. CNBC reports that European leaders have enacted a new set of COVID-19 safety measures, including potential shutdowns. France declared a public health state of emergency yesterday as they experienced their largest increase in cases since June. Germany has also adopted new guidelines for rising cases as they saw more than 5,000 new cases this week. In the UK, the city of Liverpool has effectively been shut down and is considered a high-risk area. Now we'll go to Bangladesh, where there have been protests over the last few weeks over violence towards women. After weeks of protests over lack of accountability for rapists, Bangladesh has announced stricter punishments for rapists and people who abuse women. Uh, <clears throat> recently, they sentenced five men to death for the gang rape of a girl in 2012. This is a big development for a country that had a culture of apathy towards crimes against women. Now for an update on the civil war in Yemen. Al Jazeera reports that Saudi Arabia and Oman helped arrange a prisoner swap between the Houthi rebels of Yemen and, the, and two U.S. American service members. They returned 240 Houthi supporters held prisoner in Oman to Yemen in exchange for two American service members held hostage by the Houthis in Yemen. U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien thanked the Saudi king and Omani Sultan for their help in returning the U.S. hostages. And that's all for the rundown this week. So that wraps up this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. The show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, assistant producer Jared Dang, technical producer Brittany Segeta, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, and our interview producer Team Fan. I'm your host, Valentina Orejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at CN Hall University. Be sure to tune in every week for a new episode. Talk to you soon.